already know it's the Creator Spaces show. You're regarded as one of the top podcasting experts in the world. Is that safe to say? I wouldn't say that. I think I just make a lot of noise in the right places. But uh, I think what's interesting about this is that a lot of people are in podcasting and it's brilliant, you know. But what I do in podcasting is my day-to-day now. It started off as a hobby and I was doing it on a night time and I was doing different things and, and just enjoying different things. But now it's eight, ten hours a day in podcasting. So I suppose you get that 10,000 hours pretty quickly. I think the difference is if I was a podcaster all the time, I'd find it tough. I'm in a position now where we've got a team building Captivate and Rebel Based Media and the products that we've got. It's nice to focus on creating my audio, like my Podcast Accelerator show. I've got a show about podcasting that I'm just launching that's very tongue-in-cheek. I think the fortunate thing for me is that I work in podcasting, but don't necessarily work as a podcaster all the time. And I think I'm lucky for that variation. The hamster wheel of always creating the content and having to do a little bit of marketing per episode and so on and so forth. I think that's the bit that potentially gets a little tough. It can get a little tiresome, especially if you're a hobbyist and there's not any money in it. It's tough, you know? I talk about it a little bit on my show, this idea that why would you expect to get business-like results out of something that you're a hobbyist in? You know, I can go around and I can beat Kieran every time I play golf without fail. But I'm never going to beat someone that works twice as hard on it. It's the same with podcasting. You're not going to get business-level results from a hobby podcast, and that's all right. We expect what we expect from it because of what we put into it. I think that's what the difference is, Michael, recently, is that the last five years, there's been a cataclysmic shift between what you could do to thrive as a podcaster that would turn a a hobby show into an accidental success versus where we are now, which is, do you know what? Actually, there are 2 million podcasts. By this time next month, there will be 2 million podcasts. That's the COVID bump for podcasting. That's it. And this is why you can't really now do what you got away with before which is you could get away with just being an average show, yeah, putting a little journey. bit of time in. That's the show that people still come that they want to produce, that if we produce that show, nobody's going to listen. We can run lead That's gen. It. We can run it for networking. Nobody's going to listen to it, though. There's a thousand That's other exactly founders' it. journeys. We actually can the founders' fireside. We had some really sweet cover art done. You know, we bootstrapped a podcasting start into seven figures. You know, after a year of being launched, and it's one of those scenarios where that is a really interesting story to tell. It's hard. We we could have documented that. We could, and it would have been a fantastic story. But we canned it. We never did it because of what you just said. Everyone's doing it. Love that. Podcast, that, podcast that, that really tough, encapsulates the B two B like business podcasting industry in a nutshell. If you think about the podcasts that do well, you know, that do really well, the, the amount of work that goes into them. So you're looking at Aaron Mankey, you know, you're looking at Hardcore History with Dan Carlin, you are looking at anything from Wondery, Dr. Death, Inside Star Wars, Inside Jaws, anything that Mark Ramsey writes for them. All of that is very highly produced content and it doesn't matter that it's a podcast. It Those has the 10, same... $20,000 episodes. That's exactly it. Even people like... Um, so Jamie Anderson runs the Jerry Anderson podcast. He's Jerry Anderson's son, the creator of Stingray, Captain Starlet, Thunderbirds. This is a person that's got mass IP. Yep. But instead of leaning on that and just doing the same old format of content, he invests the money from his production company to build a brand new IP, podcast first IP, first action bureau, which is there was no need to do that. But he understood that in order to stand out, we've got to treat the medium with the respect it deserves, which is not as an offshoot of something else. It's not as a positioning tool, which I'm sure we'll get to. It does work for that. But if you really want to succeed in podcasting, like you've got to go all in. And I'll tell you, this idea of repurposing your podcasts, and we've got to respect the medium for what it is, which is a media of its own. Mm-hmm.
Do you consider yourself a creator? Yeah, I do. I'm more of an ideas person. If I'm honest, if the word creator has a spectrum, I'm certainly the early stage ideas person, cobble everything together, make it work, and then hand it over to the experts. But yes, I would put myself in that bracket. So then what do you create? Would you say you create more of those alphas, the prototypes? Yeah, I think my it's taken me a long time to understand that this is actually what I do, but I think my only talent is probably spotting little gaps in opportunity and then being able to package and communicate them in such a way that people really empathize with and understand. And I'm fortunate enough to know enough about coding and to be a good enough coder to build MVPs. I'm fortunate enough to have enough of a design eye to know that something doesn't look terrible. I'm not saying I can make it look good, but I can see when it doesn't look terrible. And I I know enough about marketing and brand and positioning that I can usually get someone to start buying it. After all of that is done, that's my limit. I, I get the experts in for that. I'm a big fan of using audio production to increase your overall content output as a content marketing operation. Mm -hmm. And that's where I've staked my ground, so to speak, within the podcasting space. Obviously, that is not podcasting. That is audio content creation that happens to be released as a podcast. So I'm really curious. You don't want people to repurpose their podcasts. I develop strategies specifically to repurpose Break it down for me. This is awkward. No, I'm only joking. I'm joking. The point that I'm trying to get to is that repurposing is seen as the be-all and end-all. And that's a very flippant thing to say. But the point that I'm trying to dig into here is that a lot of people see repurposing as the way to accelerate everything or the way to do more with less, which it is. But every time you do more with less, you generally find yourself reaping diminishing returns. Now, repurposing has its place. There's no question about that. However... The problem that I've got with it is when you repurpose something, you very often do it because you feel you should do it in order to be in more places than you can focus on. Because if you could focus on them, you would do dedicated content for one particular thing and you would edit your YouTube video in such a way that it appealed to the YouTube audience versus editing the podcast in a different way that would appeal to the audio audience. So what I'm talking about really is when people do repurposing and then expect it to grow everything across the board. That simply doesn't work. So the distinction Mm -hmm. that I want to make really clear is that repurposing for me is great if you have one main channel that you really focus on. The repurposing supports that channel. Distribution strategy for an existing channel. That's exactly it. Yeah. And a lot of people are on the same page there. Because I do that and I use the audio and I funnel it all to a newsletter. Perfect. Classic digital marketer. Exactly. Yeah. I was just about to say, which is exactly what I do. You know, get that email address. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. I think it's time for some guest Q&A. So, Mark, one of the things you added with uh, Captivate is dynamic content insertion. And when most people think of dynamic content, they usually think of ads. But I'm curious to hear what innovative ways creators are using it. I think the challenge comes here with facilitation from hosting providers. So when we look at what we're doing with Captivate, we've very specifically built it out to be its own product, even its own sub-brand. So this is called Amy. Our dynamic content engine is called Amy, audio mastering and insertion engine. And one of the things that we want to try and facilitate is the education of what can be done with dynamic content. And this is why we're not calling it DAI, we're calling it DCI. And Everything from the ability to swap trailers, everything, the the ability to chain logic, everything, especially when we talk about some of the interaction stuff with productivity, the ability to react 
to things, I think, is the next kind of step in DCI. Now, that's going to take a lot of education. Yeah. But yeah, to the point of what people are using it for, I do see genuinely the vast majority of creators using it, as Matt said. We'll splice a little bit into the beginning. We'll maybe just run some ads. We'll do a little bit of promo. But there's so much more that can be done with it. So I think that the first thing to do is just understand that one of the most effective ways of growing a podcast is just to collaborate with other podcasters and get your trailer into the feeds, get your trailer into the episodes of other people. So that's one big use case that we're focusing on for the creators is letting people do that. And so how do you go about building your audience now? If you look at any creator like myself, it's always standing by two distinct things. Number one, You've got to have a genuine interest in people. Authenticity is thrown around. There's this real benchmark that we should all strive towards. But it's, a lot of it's fake. People believe authenticity is one thing when it's not. I have a tough day. I have a rough day. And I will take it out on a customer. I will take it out on a person. But the point that I'm saying there is that the authenticity allows me to go back and say, look, dude, here's the situation. Here's what the crack is. Let's move forward. Let's get past that. I want to call something out. So I don't believe in being authentic only because I feel like that advice isn't accurate for all people. Yeah, I get that. Could you elaborate on what you mean? by authenticity? To me, I don't understand how to not be authentic. Let me put it in those terms. A lot of people don't necessarily understand how we've achieved what we've achieved as a business relatively quickly because I don't know how to act any other way. And I genuinely don't. So I think authenticity for me, and this is where I really struggle to articulate it, is really I act pretty much the same with customers, with peers, as I would with anyone. There is no difference. So to me, like I struggle to make that distinction between what is authentic. So I suppose to the question, a lot of people are selling almost this idea of being open and transparent to a fault where you are expected to be a little bit abrasive, brace this idea that you will repel some people, and that is all right, but some people take it too far. And I think one of the big dangers is when you start to map the word entrepreneur and put that next to the word authenticity. You end up with a lot of people that don't know how to make money, but are trying to rub people up the wrong way just to try and make a name for themselves. And I think that is what authenticity is painted as. So I'm with you. I don't believe in this authenticity that has been billed as the only thing that you need to build your content. I just simply have not been educated enough to know how to act differently. One of my mentors always told me, the mark of a great company culture is that everyone can be shouting and hating each other in the boardroom, but as soon as they step outside, we're unified. Do you know what? That is the most foundational piece of my co-founder. It's one of the most foundational pieces of our relationship. There's never a grudge. I will be a total ass to him. He will be an ass to me. We will differ in so many different ways. But when this discussion is done, that's it. The respect is still there. The friendship's still there. The love's still there. And we act no differently with each other. And then, like you said, my job as a CEO, in my view, the most paramount, most important job is to have my arm around everyone on the team. And I regularly tell customers that they're not right for us. I regularly tell people, actually, do you know what? The second you drop an F-bomb to one of my staff, I'm handling you and you have one decision to make. If you will do that again, you are out. And it's a funny thing. It sounds almost a little arrogant. My thought process is always, wait a second. We work 8, 10, 12 hours a day. And as a CEO, a lot of the unseen stuff, the 4 a.m. wake-ups, I wake up every day without doubt at 4 a.m. worried about something. My mind is burning. I'm thinking through what have we got to do for Captivate. 
oh dear, will that person have replied? Are they going to be happy? Are they not going to be happy? Are they going to tell me that they're not happy with the service because they're having to pay $2 extra from a competitor? There's all this and it happens all the time. One of the things that you've got to do is really appreciate what your role is. And like I said, the only role that you've got is to protect two things, your people and second, your brand. And I know a lot of people say, well, the customer comes first. And I agree, the customer is vital. Without customers, we don't do anything. However, there is a concept I used to throw around a lot when I was doing startup mentoring around this idea of bad money. If you build your business on people that shout and that stamp their feet and that are threatening to leave because you're charging them a dollar more than the competitors. They're terrible to work with. They so are. And there's no stability. You will build a life that you are nervous about. And you can't do that. And I think just to sum that up, I think no one sets their own business up to work with people who make them feel bad. If the person that has just joined the company and they're earning a base level wage, a very young age, getting their foot on the employment ladder, if they come into the business and a customer makes them feel bad about coming to work because that customer is having a bad day, then, like I said before, the customer has a decision to make because that person matters. And as a CEO, that's your job. That's the job that no one tells you, but it's vital. When you're a creator as well, like you put your life and your soul into creating good quality work and people are toxic and there are a lot of overlaps with this. So what I'm talking about here is we work so hard, long hours, the 4 a.m. wake-ups, the anxiety, the thought processes, all the work that goes into it, all the plates that you spin it. But at some point, to quote Harvey Dent, you live long enough to become the villain. And you've got to face that head on because someone will believe that because they've paid you for six months, they can treat you as if you're not a human. And that's a really tough thing as a founder and as a CEO to handle because all the advice, all the books will tell you that's not how you do it. You're the unreasonable one, but they're not the ones waking up at 4am worried about it. So it's a real challenge. And that toxicity, it gets everywhere. You've got to be really careful with it. I think one of the things that I like to do with a team is really give them the space and the willingness and the confidence to call it out and say, listen, here you are as customer X, you're a valued customer, we enjoy working with you. But here's the distinction between you having an issue and us working together and you wrapping that issue in just being nasty. Let's just spend a little time, let's separate the two out. We'll help you, we'll go over and above. But this stuff over here, this other stuff that you've wrapped that in, that can't happen anymore. What's your North Star metric for success? How do you know you're doing right? So there's two that I would use. One of them is personal and the other one is professional. The reason there's those two is that I think the work-life balance demands two metrics. So the professional level of success is how many people or have we noticed a trend or are we feeling like more people are saying, Mark, what do you think? What I'm talking about here is podcast ad tech or podcast privacy. There's a lot going on in that space at the minute. If I'm never getting asked my opinion of it, then something's wrong. Me and my industry, I'm not doing enough. It's on me. It's my fault. But that success metric of what do you think? Will you come and tell us about that? Will you talk to us about it? Will you do a Twitter spaces with us? Will you come and speak on stage? Will you write us a blog post? I think that as a soft metric is vital. Now, on the personal side is just how do you feel? If you can really get in touch with how you feel, you can understand what's not quite right across the board. So as an example of that, I wake up at 4 a.m. anyway just because I can't sleep. Like My head is just burning with either ideas or worry or something. I've got to do something for Captivate or whatever. 
if I wake up at 4am and I'm worried about a customer and I'm worried about getting that dread email and, oh, my word, what is going to be in my inbox when I wake up, then that, for me, is a sign that maybe that customer is not quite there. Maybe that customer is not quite right. Yep. So those two are the soft metrics. Obviously, we can go deeper into the harder metrics, but the soft metrics, they've taken me a long time to learn. I think they're often more valuable than the hard metrics. Those softer feelings can often give you a heads up before you see it in any of the real numbers. If you could send a tweet back to your start, what would it be? The tweet would probably be something like, stick to the vision, but focus on how you feel. That would be the thing, because the how is transient. Love it. Short, sweet, to the point. I fire customers at least once a quarter. I fire people when I raise rates if they won't come up to match, and I fire when they're rude. And so if I'm not doing that regularly, I know that my business is not growing in a way that I want it to be. That's key, in a way that you want it to be. I think that's a really important statement, and... It goes back to that idea of bad money. Lots of different types of bad money can run through your business. And I always make the analogy of it being bad blood running through your veins. You feel all right for a little while. You can still keep running. You can keep exercising. You can keep walking. You keep eating, talking, laughing. But things start to slow down. Things get a little bit, suddenly, why am I tired walking up this hill? Why am I tired running up the stairs? And in your business, it's, wait a sec, why have I missed this deadline, wait a sec, I spent six hours with this person that's kicking off because actually there was something wrong with their stuff. We offered to fix it. They were just having a bad day and we had to spend a lot of time there with them. But like I said, separating the nasty from the issue, if you can do that, when you look back on those six hours spent, that's when you look at it and say, wait a sec, five of those six hours were just me being shouted at for no reason. Whereas the one hour was me taking the podcast cover art, redoing it and sending it back to them. I've been involved in the podcasting space since 2012 and was really curious with the project Podcasting 2.0, the podcast namespace and index, which Adam Curry and Dave Jones have been working on. How far into integration or partnership are you with all of that? Yeah, we're doing pretty well with that, actually. It's, uh, it's an interesting one, that's for sure. So we were one of the first to integrate with the Podcast Index. In fact, I think we were the first host to offer a direct integration. We worked pretty close with Dave and Adam on that. So we're big believers in that. When it comes to the tags, we just implemented the transcription tag. We've got another couple that we're implementing over the next few weeks. We've taken a bit of a more measured approach than some of the other hosts have, mainly because, what's the best way to put this, a lot of hosts have done just enough to make it marketable, but not quite enough to actually offer full support yeah we didn't want to be that that's not us and a lot of being completely frank a lot of people have implemented the locked tag which we've got some interesting thoughts on let's be clear that will not stop piracy being a problem it's an rss feed i can copy it so it's (laughs) it's not going to make much of a difference but yeah we support it big fans of for anyone that's listening that doesn't know the captivate advisory board is made up of some very specific people to help us really just get out of our own way with this sort of stuff. So we've got James Cridland on the board, Daniel J. Lewis, Evo Terra, Jordan Harbinger, all big advocates of podcasting 2.0. So yeah, we're on board with it. The other challenge as well is always just booking the timing. Like we want to do, I think probably the next tag we're doing is the location tag. And it's just, it's fitting it into the roadmap and squeezing the dev timing. That's a consideration as well. But overall, huge fans of what's going on over there, of course. But also, I think so many people still think of this as just ads. 
promotional content that could be inserted at such a time that it's maybe semi-relevant to people. The interest that I've got in this is very much around time-bound, time-sensitive stuff, where my podcast might not be able to ordinarily react to something. So, Michael, you run a daily show. James Cridland runs a daily show at Pod News. I can't really do anything on my show that's time-sensitive or time-bound or that is, is reactive in nature because I produce twice a week. It's a Monday and a Friday. So as an example of that, I would assume I wanted to react to the new Apple news changing subscribe to follow. Sure, I put another episode out. But what I'd love to be able to do and what I'll be able to do with the Amy platform is very specifically record linkable pieces of content that I can then push into my back episode. So like for me, think of it like a public service announcement. I want to be able to say to people, oh, by the way, if you're listening to episode 12, which came out two years ago, heads up. Apple have just changed this thing. You should know about it regardless of the fact that you're listening to a really old episode. So I know that's just another form of promo and it's just another form of content. But for me, it's contextualizing the content that you can use it for. And I think that's why the changing of dynamic ad insertion and changing that to dynamic content insertion. It's, it's just a subtle shift that I think we need to get our heads around. And there are countless other things we can do. If I were to look at the Captivate roadmap, there's so much more on there, a bit based around behavior, based around interactivity and interaction. And even paid for content, we can open up dynamic content based on payment. So there's so much more that we could do with this one, but that's a deep answer, I realize. What would you suggest to look for in a good partner and co-founder? You've got to figure out what your gaps are. And there's two types of gaps as well. The ones that you know about and you're all right with and the ones that you think you are good at but probably should address as being gaps. And I'm saying that from a place of being that person that will not ever do that. Address what gaps you've got. And you've got to find someone that will complement what you do very well by filling those gaps. If you look at what Kieran and I do together, Each of us got a very specific overlapping knowledge. If I'm on the left of the Venn diagram and Kieran's on the right, the overlap that we've got in the middle is technical ability to code. That's as basic as it gets. But Kieran's on the right-hand side, he's so much deeper at coding. But for me, that's just one facet of what I do. But we've still got that in common. So that common ground really allows us to talk on the same level, to solve problems together. But our gaps complement each other. The things that I can't do, he can do very well. The things that he can't do, I can do. So that would be my first thing. The second thing would always be someone that you either already know well enough to be able to get back from a problem with or someone that you really feel like you could get to that point with. So it's like I mentioned earlier. Kieran and I will go at each other. We'll fall out, we'll disagree, and then 30 seconds later, it's fine. We're back to normal because we understand that the reason that we fall out and the reason that we push each other is because we both care enough about what we're doing. So they're the two things that I'd say, dude. Now, I will say that's very tough. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. So take your time. Don't rush into something with someone because you're inevitably giving something away when you do. Very interested to know more about your entrepreneurial journey. In particular, if you could tell us about how you navigated the dividing of the imaginary pie before your platform was conceived with your co-founder. When it came down to dividing the pie in terms of percentage of ownership, how did that play out for you guys? And what tips do you have for those of us that are going through the entrepreneurial journey now and are talking to potential co-founders and that kind of stuff? It's a question that a lot of people would shy away from. So again, I appreciate you bringing that to the table. And the honest answer is that 
we just instantly from day one there was never any question in doubt that everything would just be straight down the middle never a question why would there never be a question about that because the thing couldn't exist without either of us now I have done it in the past where I've had those conversations and we've always just done the same thing. I've always just been overly fair and always just said, look, this is what you're worth. And very often, 50-50, if it's a genuine co-founder, if it's not someone that you're hiring in to have the title of co-founder and give a little bit of equity to later, but if it's a genuine sat around the table, here is our idea, it should always be 50-50 in my view because it's better to have 50% of something than 100% of nothing. So that's the first thing. The second thing is if you are in a position where, say, you've got a business, and I know a few people through startups that have done this, where they've built the business and they've taken it as far as they possibly can, need someone on board that may, say, for example, fill a CTO role. But that CTO comes in and says, look, I want the salary. Of course, I want some options. However, I also want co-founder status because it'll look great. And actually, I'm going to put a lot of time into this. That's all right. Some people do want that. If that's the case, I think you've always got to, again, be overly fair. This is a weird piece of advice, and I'm sure a lot of people will disagree with it, but if you just begin to feel uncomfortable with the amount of equity that you're potentially given, you're probably just about in the right ballpark because that's enough to matter to that person. So that will be a sliding scale. That might be 1%, 5 10 15 20 50 whatever that is for you. You'll find that yourself. But what I would also do is just make sure that you've got the right vesting terms. Make sure that when you put your contracts together, use someone like C-Legals or the lawyer that you use. Make sure that the vesting terms are good quality terms. That term sheet has got to be right. You need a relevant cliff in there. You've got to have the right vesting periods because if you get that wrong, the recourse that you will have will be very little if that person turns out to not be very good. I know that's a deep question and a deep answer, but I hope that helps.